0: This is an European Public Service Union podcast.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. This is another edition of EPSU Podcast. My name is Boyan Stanislavski and I will be your host. Today with me is the usual co-host of the show, Pablo Sanchez, the media officer of EPSU. Hello, Pablo. Hello again. And uh, the newcomer uh, on our show, Tuscany Bell. Tuscany, uh, what is your position in EPSU?
0: Hi, yes. So I'm um, policy coordinator for social services and youth. Um, in terms of social services, we focus mainly on long-term care and early childhood education and care.
1: Right, thank you. And now to our special guest, Emma Dowling. Emma Dowling is a professor, assistant professor in the University of Vienna in Austria. She's also uh, the author of the book, which is going to be... Uh, central to our discussion today. Uh, Hello, Emma. Welcome to the show and thank you for taking time to be with us today.
2: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
1: Right. So we invited you uh, because the question of care, social care, and uh, everything which surfaced as a major problem during the two years of the pandemic uh, is now a central uh, thing, a central issue, uh, not only in the public sphere in general throughout Europe, but also is one of the main focuses of the labor movement and also has been in focus of EPSU, the European Public Service Union. And uh, you are also an author of a book which uh, recently came out, and uh, let me just pull it up here so that our uh, viewers can see that the book is uh, is published by verso. And the title of the book is the care crisis, what caused it and how can we end it? And uh, I think we should uh, perhaps, you know, familiarize our audience with uh, with this book. So let me just uh, presented very shortly. Every one of us will obviously require care at some point in our lives, whether it is social care, health care, you know, child care or elder care. Uh, Care has definitely emerged as the most pressing issue of our uh, time in the aftermath of COVID-19, as I said. Uh, However, our healthcare systems are in disarray. An obsession with profits and productivity has trumped concern for the most vulnerable and the question here is, how did we get here? In an era of economic uncertainty, lower birth rates and increased life expectancy, uh, meant that a larger population, a larger proportion of the population is of retirement age than ever before, as a result of an increasing number of people, uh, require care. Nonetheless, despite the demand, public services are being cut and sold off. Those in the greatest need are left to fend for themselves and uh, in this groundbreaking i would say book uh, emma explores the uh, explores the nature of of care in the modern world from self-care uh kind of mantras and and what they reveal about our anxieties to uh the state of social care uh social care system the book the care crisis investigates how profit and care are pitted against one another, exposing the consequences of financialization and austerity. Uh, she also documents uh, the current experiments in in short-term solutions. So, uh, Emma, I'd like to begin by a very general question about, uh, yeah, why and how of this.
2: So, as you said in your introductory remarks already everyone needs care at some point in their life and many people also provide care so care is something that touches everyone's lives but it's also not really something that people want to spend much time talking or thinking about although obviously since the pandemic it's uh, an issue that's become much more at the front, forefront of people's minds but actually when i began working on the book which was around 2016 What I wanted to do is make the visible a growing care crisis that was affecting more and more people. Now the context of the book is Britain after the global financial crisis of 2008 in the context of the austerity measures that were happening there. And so I I set out really to speak to different people in caring roles, those caring for loved ones and feeling on their own, junior doctors on strike over the devaluation of their work, migrant domestic workers struggling for recognition, people working in care homes facing the effects of privatisation, but also social workers on the front lines of austerity volunteers helping refugees and challenging who's cared for and who's not. And so what I was really trying to do is to, to show that even though a lot of the talk around care was about cuts and deficits and the lack of care, I wanted to challenge this kind of superficial idea that we live in a sort of careless society and wanted to show that people are actually caring all the time and they haven't stopped caring, but they're trying to do so under increasingly difficult conditions. And I wanted to make visible the realities of providing care and also receiving care. And I wanted to join up the dots between the paid uh, care works that takes place in professionalised contexts and also the unpaid care that takes place across our lives. And I really want to ask quite systematically, then, what does our economy look like from the uh, perspective of care. Now also thinking back to this context of austerity, a lot of, the, um, a lot of the public debate was about economic crisis. So that really was also a way in for me to say, well, okay, economic crisis is often talked about in very abstract terms, GDP, uh, economic growth. But actually, if we zoom in on care, the whole issue of crisis takes a, a very different, uh, it looks very different. And so, That's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to also show that there are attempts to solve this care crisis that's growing. But if we don't really understand what are the really structural causes, then these solutions are really just kind of short term fixes. And then, of course, when I finished the book, um, the care crisis couldn't really be ignored any longer because the pandemic um, hit and um, the realities of the situations that lots of people were facing were really brought, brought to the fore. So but you also asked me about the the how of the book. I already said I set out to talk to different people. Um, I in, did interviews with people who uh, um, were doing the work of caring in different contexts. But I also looked at academic research on the topic of care, uh, government government reports, trade union and NGO reports, company reports, media articles, and tried to really weave together theory on the one hand with statistics and facts and figures about care and, and and care work, but also the underground experiences that people are having. So through the interviews I tried to also really um say something about the nature and the status of care and link up these experiences with a structural analysis of the status of care on the whole in our in our economy and our society.
1: Right. Well, I think that uh, it speaks a lot. Everything you said speaks a lot to what has been the focus of uh, many labor organizations, trade unions, particularly those that are uh, part of EPSU. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously now uh, or over the last uh, two years, two years and a half, uh, the question of care uh well has been central but has been central exactly in those terms that you explain i mean most journalists most commentators they're going to you know discuss it in uh in very structural terms but they're going to uh pay relatively little attention i would say to the humanistic human factor in the whole thing here and i think it speaks to uh to, to the experience of, of of the trade unions, and I'd like you, uh, Tuscany and Pablo, to perhaps either confirm that or maybe push back, if you don't agree with it, uh, that, you know, there's a lot of talk about all kinds of indicators, could be GDP, could be, you know, the amount of people placed in this care home and that care home, or the amount of doctors that graduated and all, you know, all the rest of it. But then, you know, there's the question of people actually suffering, suffering real, really badly from, you know, the ongoing, uh, uh, well, from the ongoing pathologies in this um in, in this um, sector. And I'd like you to uh, to perhaps, uh, you know, tell me a few words about how do you see that from your angle, from from where you are in, uh, in EPSU. Uh, Tuscany, I'd like uh, you to perhaps uh, answer this question first.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so, well, Emma, as she said, she focuses mainly on the UK. But the first thing I would start by saying is that the situation in the UK following the 2008 financial crisis is is Europe-wide. So what we saw in the UK and what Emma describes in her book and shows through individual stories as well is really a a European problem. And this happened kind of across across Europe. Um, I think the pandemic kind of changed the narrative slightly. So while you do still have this political level talking about the numbers and the qualifications and the GDP and all these things, I mean, the TV stories from care homes and you know the, the news that the people that people saw um, actually did bring a human aspect into it in, in some ways because you saw how many people were dying and you had you know like footage from care homes in Italy and Spain of you know people being taken out kind of by mass people that ha- had got COVID and they didn't have the the PPE there or the infrastructure to care for them. So I think COVID changed the narrative slightly and also brought it into the public view. Um, which, which it wasn't before, and it was masked by these big talks of figures and, and statistics mm-hmm. and stuff. And I think that's a good thing that Emma's book does before the COVID is, as, as you say, it has all the individual stories as well. So it's not just looking at the, um, I don't know, the theoretical side or the statistics side. It has the the stories of people. And, I mean, when it's put in this way, and also when we had COVID, it's something that everyone can relate to, because, as you say, it, it's mm-hmm. a part of everyone's lives. Um I would say the trade unions, we've been for a very long time trying to bring this um, into the public light. It's been obviously harder um, up until COVID. We had uh, many, many protests across Europe. Um, it was a big issue for a long time. And I think, as I say, yeah, after the COVID pandemic, with Emma's book, also with um, other books that have come to light since then, exposing kind of problems in privatisation of care, it's all kind of come a, a big time for a big... Um, what's the word, kind of accumulation of the problems that have been happening. So for us, it's it's a good moment in a way to kind of seize on this momentum and see what we can do to change it.
1: Right. Oh, Emma, back to you. So in in, in the book, uh, you discuss uh, this um, kind of separation between social reproduction and and care. Uh, And I think it would be great if you could explain these terms and how they have become... You know, increasingly separated from one another.
2: Yeah, so um, social reproduction and care. Maybe just to contextualise the terms in the first place. I think for perhaps um, non-academic listeners or listeners that are not so invested in in uh, academic debates, um, the term care might be quite familiar, but uh, social reproduction might be less familiar. Um, And social reproduction is really a term that has gained a lot of traction in recent years and comes out of feminist debates. on the um, the role and the function of unpaid work, including care work, but unpaid work, um, housework, cleaning, cooking, uh, care work, to looking after children, um, uh, looking after relatives, all of that work, all of the work that's done to sustain life and reproduce life, and um, uh, hence the, the word reproduction there also, that's sort of the, the work of social reproduction. Um, but it's not just work that reproduces life or sustain life, it's also work that's absolutely necessary for the the economy to function because it's also the work that reproduces and makes sure um, that labour power is available for the economy. So the child rearing, um, the replenishing of the the labour power that takes place in the home when uh, we go home in the evening and uh, have our dinner and do what we need to do in order to be able to um, go to work the next today that that's not just um stuff that we do on the basis of buying um products um that's also work that happens there and that work is mostly unpaid and so there's the sort of feminist lens hones in on the the areas of society where this unpaid work is done in particular the family and the home and um has analyzed how this is work that is rendered invisible in many ways it's not considered work um and it's also work that uh, mostly women uh, do, and particularly traditionally women have done, and that, you know, we have seen some changes there. Um, and we've also seen some changes in the attention that's paid um, to, uh, to, to care. So, for example, um, there never used to be time-use surveys conducted on um, on unpaid uh, uh, work in the home, and that's something that um, in, in some countries is done now. Um, so there is a sort of greater attention, but... Um, Theoretically, this term social reproduction refers to this sphere um, of, of work that you could argue is a kind of background condition of the economy. Um, it's the unpaid work that's done the, without which we couldn't live, let alone be uh, economically productive. And so the kind of structural problem there is that it's work that is not considered to be work or it's invisible. It's, it's attributed to, um, to to women and uh, doesn't have much, much value so the term social reproduction tries to really unearth um, that, that work and ask the question of who is doing it, under what conditions, uh, uh, and so forth. Um, and on the other hand, care, I, uh, and, and perhaps the, the, the connection there is also that often care and social reproduction get uh, get used interchangeably, whereas I wanted in the book to say, well, it's not a case of calling this work either Reproductive labor or care work—it's more a case that we need both terms to really try and um, understand what's at stake. So, having explained social reproduction, let me just uh, say a few words about care. I see care um, in in a number of ways. One way um, is quite generally in social care and social policy. Um, care is also the um, what people who um, are unable to sort of provide for themselves, that's the care that they need um, through extra assistance, say if they have an illness or a disability um, or uh, elderly, um, that's a sort of area of, of care and what's um, what care means in the context of social policy. But beyond that, care is also something that, has a kind of ethical dimension, also an affective, emotional um, dimension. Um, It's something that is based on sympathetic attachments to other people. It also produces those sympathetic attachments. Um, And at the same time, care, I'd say, is also, and that's what I mean by a kind of ethical relation, caring or the act of caring has something to do with attending to the needs of of, of someone else, so being attentive also to those, to those needs. Um, and I think also here caring in its emotional and affective dimensions, as I already said, is also uh, important in terms of what care means. And this caring takes place in the context of social reproduction, but also in other spheres of society. So it's not limited to um, to social reproduction and also um, looking at care in this way, we can start to unpack what happens when care is um, or the work of caring is um, standardised, industrialised, rationalised, um, or when attempts are made to render it profitable, um, which is all the things that I that I try to look at in the book. And here, what we see often is. That um, the sort of caring uh, dimensions of um, of care, so the sort of effective emotional dimensions, are often that for which there is little time. Um, again, it's either sort of offloaded to uh, the unpaid part of the working day. So often, uh, care workers uh, find themselves staying longer, doing overtime, to give that you know bit more care in its um, more relational dimensions, because they simply don't have the time, and they're under such pressure. Or their jobs have been rationalized in a way that the orientation is towards time and tasks in uh, in their work that um, are boiled down to what actual care is. And this sort of um, the caring, the relational dimensions of caring are kind of emptied, emptied out or relegated to other people or at the end of the day, actually relied on nonetheless, because uh, a lot of the time people feel that they can't do this work without actually uh, caring um even though they're doing so under duress a lot of the time so um what i was trying to do with um using these two terms in in different ways is really to um look for ways into understanding these different aspects of um the issues that are at stake when we think about care in our society and our economy
1: can you uh... Perhaps elaborate a little bit on how this division uh, kind of played out, played itself out during the years of the pandemic. I mean, uh, has anything fundamentally changed? Has it strengthened this division, or uh, has it produced any other processes that are, you know, worth um, our attention?
2: So I think when it comes to the pandemic, we see a number of things. And one thing um, that I think it's important to bear in mind is that uh, when I say our economy or the economy, of course, I'm talking talking about a capitalist economy and a capitalist economy that is um, premised on uh, keeping the cost of all of this work as low as possible. And finding ways to keep uh, that cost as low uh, as possible. So whether that is relegating work uh, to the to the home and to the family, um, or whether that is relying on um, labour market vulnerabilities. So in the sense, uh, what I mean there is. Um, the ways that sort of structural discriminations within the labour market are used to um, pay and uh, not pay very well uh, in in this sector. Um, there there are all sorts of ways in which the attempts are made to, kill, to keep this cost low. Relying on volunteers is another way um, that, this, that this can be done. Um, and so there is this kind of structural problem um, here, and we can see again and again the uh, ways in which uh, there is a kind of uh, imperative to be particularly cost-efficient and um, and cut costs. That that's all part of this kind of this kind of logic, and uh, that's something that we can see with um, the analysis, the sort of feminist analysis of social reproduction, is this kind of systematic structural way um, that uh, caring, care work, and other kinds of um, um, reproductive work are systematically undervalued and devalued, not least. To say it's considered unskilled work. Anybody can do it, or it's, you know, it relies on sort of women stepping in, or people in general stepping in because they feel like they um, they can't not care. And you know, these are all sorts of ways in which um, in which this is this is done. And in the pandemic, I think what we saw is a, is a strong reliance on the family and the household, and an assumption that um, care would simply be done uh, in the home, and um, the sort of policies around lockdown, home office, home Schooling, um, there was very little attention uh, paid to the consequences of what that would mean, also for um, people uh, who had childcare responsibilities and the ways in which there's lots of research that has shown that those who stepped in to do all of this work were mostly women in um, in the home. That's that's one aspect. The other aspect um, is. Uh, what we saw as a situation and Tuscany already mentioned this of um, the situation in care homes and also with with home care and at the beginning at least the, the very little attention that was also attributed to these uh, sites and spheres where care work was being uh, was being done, and what was really shown was um, the lack of resources uh, understaffing uh, high stress levels. Um, and when we say lack of resources, this is not just something about pay and, um, and working conditions, but also in the context of the pandemic, of course, access to PPE um, and testing and these sorts of things. And, and I think care homes, in, in many, many countries, um, there were high mortality rates in, in care homes. Um, and the question, of course, surfaced, well, um, why was that the, the case and why was it not possible to, to protect care homes? And I think that the, the context context of this crisis and the ways in which uh, care and social care have been underfunded and under resourced but also privatised and uh, with an orientation towards rendering these um, care homes and, and home care more profitable, uh, that, that is something that we that really came to the fore also in the pandemic and became very obvious.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, given everything you said here, I'd like to go to you, Tiskany, again, to uh, perhaps uh, tell us as a policy advisor, what kind of advisors, what kind of policy can you design in in a situation uh, that, you know, Emma just described? I mean, everything seems to be uh, falling apart when it comes to care, uh, or, you know, even if we use this split between uh, reproduction and care, then uh, I wonder how, what kind of policy can uh, the unions develop in order to address all those structural, including those structural issues uh, that Emma mentioned here?
0: Well, I think the first thing that we say um, when we you know, um, comment on policy or policy documents is um, that it has to be person-centered, which means that the focus has to be the people, whether the care receiver or the caregiver. You have to start with the needs of the care receiver and the needs of the caregiver, and you can't separate these two things. You can't have a resilient care service without a resilient care workforce. So you have to have the conditions for the workforce to be able to provide the care that the people need. Um, and when you start with that as your as your focus or as your base, then you can step back from there and think, okay, how do we provide this to everyone? How do we make sure that it's universally... Um, accessible and affordable Um, and what we say is that care should be integrated into public health systems and national social protection systems so that they can deliver to everyone. Um, A big thing with the privatisation is whether or not you have private care you shouldn't have profit. So for example there are some non-profit organisations that's fine but where care is um, being privatized and money is being taken out for shareholders, this is necessarily being taken away from the people that need care and for the people who are delivering care. So, yeah, starting with the people and that approach rather than a market-based approach is um, is our kind of overarching message. I don't know if Pablo, you want to add?
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, Pablo, let me go to I've been here uh, quite briefly. quietly, so... Um, yeah, yeah. Because also
3: I, this podcast is the place where we kind of go beyond our daily send emails and... Deal with requests. So yes, uh, I, mean, I, I agree with what Tascani just said. I would just wanted to go back to uh, something that Emma mentioned before. Uh, this, I think, she said ethical. Um, I, I, but I think care is one of those things where you actually show the you not know, that you show it, but you can see what are the values of a society. I mean, I I, I like this kind of. Uh, saying that i totally made up now but it's like i mean uh, to to, to me the level of civilization of a society will be uh, in relation to how it takes care of the people that need it Uh, and and that's why i mean if you take that logic uh, if you put a for-profit system if you put it under market rules i mean some those that need care are not going to be profitable even with the rules of of the market so if you really want to be inclusive towards the whole of society you need to do you know some sort of planning of sort of uh, understanding of what are those needs how many people how many deaf people how many children with problems there are there might be there will be so you need to actually build facilities and so on so uh, I mean, one of the things that you've talked to carers that you get a lot is like the need of more time. Now, of course, those that work in the formal sector, they sell the labor and therefore they sell their time. So when you increase this need for more profit or to be more efficient, defined in economic stroke monetary terms well time becomes a hindrance so that's why we we are so adamant of saying this needs to be managed in a different way and i, I think that's the precondition for this question about like how can we have another another uh, another system for for the care sector It's like well we need to stop like break uh, everything that is happening the inertia and then move towards a more non-for-profit publicly and and publicly controlled system where we can actually I mean, analyze what are the needs of society and then also how to deal with those needs and then put the means in place to actually do that. Um, Because in an ideal world, we shouldn't, I mean, the social reproduction and care discussion should actually be reduced if we had the the, the possibility of having uh, more support for people so they don't need to put more uh, free. Uh, labor uh, in the daily life. So I think that's a very important element to, to actually understand the problem. In a way, I'm very conditioned for the energy crisis now, but it, like the energy crisis, we can actually have an a, a ad hoc solution for the next three months. But unless we put the root solution that actually tackles what causes the current crisis, we will have another one in I don't know, six months, a year, two years down the line. It's this, exactly the same situation with the care sector and the care crisis. And the issue is like, uh, shall we have another pandemic in order for people to even wake up more? I don't know. I hope not. But uh, I, I would I would really like yeah, but, to, to but see that.
1: I'd like to ask perhaps a supplementary question here, because do we need another pandemic for people to wake up uh, effectively, so to say, uh Obviously, I hope we don't need another pandemic, we won't have another pandemic, hopefully. But uh, how how has the pandemic impacted the the policies that Tuscany spoke about? For example, the policies of, of the unions, uh, particularly those, of course, that, that are part of EPSU. Have you noticed some sort of visible shift when it comes to the approach of the unions that are active in this sector, care sector?
0: I mean, in terms of the unions, I would say the approach hasn't necessarily changed because we've been saying the same thing for quite a long time. I think, if anything, people listen to us more now, maybe. Um, Well, more so than they did anyway. And we see it at policy level, um, at least in Europe, with the new European care strategy, for example. I don't know if the UK followed suit with something quite as big in terms of social care, Um, No, but yeah, we have at least at European level, the European care strategy, um, which is a kind of, I would say, the politicians maybe or the well policymakers at European level are are waking up and kind of understanding Mm -hmm. a bit more. But um, I mean, I think in Emma's conclusion in her book, she kind of talks about the public reaction to the COVID and the standing on the doorsteps and clapping. And I think that was a moment of people waking up. But going back to do we need another pandemic? I think people may already be starting to forget because unfortunately we're going through a time of so many crises that it seems like every day the news is blown up with something else really big and so this gets pushed back and mm. i think that that's what we've got to really try and prevent from happening basically
1: Yeah, but, but, but uh you know from what i gather we don't really need to reinvent the wheel right i mean you've been you've been suggesting those policies all along and it's uh, now that people are you know they, they have a chance, okay, to uh, perhaps implement them and prevent what we've witnessed over the last two years, I guess. And, uh, another element which is very important here and which has been always very important from, uh, uh, from the point of view of the labor unions, of APSU, uh, is the question of the increasing, you spoke about that, uh, Emma, and Tuscany, you too, about the growing commercialization of this sector. And uh, I think in your book, uh, you mention, uh, you describe it as financialization. So uh, there are problems, obviously, and there are those quick, short-term, one-off uh, kind of Care fixes uh, that do not address really the underlying issues or provide long-term solutions, but uh, on the contrary, they might actually be deepening those problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, by you know increasing commercialization, financialization, uh, can you uh, give us a few examples, maybe, so that you know mm-hmm. we're uh, so that the the, the listeners can um, can get a better sense of uh, well, how exactly is this happening?
2: Sure, um, I mean I think the first thing to say here is um, just to recap on the point that um, one of the issues with commercialization is that it is it is actually quite difficult to render care profitable unless you're offering it as a luxury um, a, as a luxury good, which uh, you know at, at a high cost, which only very few people can afford. So that's kind of the first problem and the first issue why it, we require a public system is that you know, care is something that everybody needs so you can't actually um, offer it uh, on the basis of this kind of market logic um, and the reason why care is uh, so difficult to, to render profitable is precisely because because it's so labour and time uh, consuming so attempts here to raise productivity uh, um, are, uh, are very limited, well they, they have very limited effect and so as, uh, as has already been said, you have this kind of pseudo rationalisations that happen i.e. a lowering of um, of, of costs through cuts to uh, um, wages or also changes in, in working conditions. And that's the way that uh, profits are actually um, are actually made. And profits means here the sort of private, you know, the money the, uh, private wealth extractions and money being taken out that otherwise would be available to pay for uh, wages and improve uh, and have better working conditions. And the financialization that I look at in the book Refers to um, different areas of care, but one of the central areas where our care has been financialized are care homes, and um, an issue here is, uh, on the one hand, we can talk about the problems of commercialization in in general, but the issue here is also that there are very inappropriate business models being applied through the entry of um, private equity companies into the sector who. Um, who buy up care care homes through um, so-called leverage buyouts? So using so borrowing money to buy up these care homes but then loading the care homes that are bought with that debt meaning that those care homes then have to be restructured in order to um, be profitable for not only for shareholders but also so that these debts can be repaid with with interest Um, and here therefore there is a necessity to make quite a lot of money um, in these care homes in order to service that kind of business model. In addition of course um, with the uh, real estate um, also being inserted into kind of speculative financial uh, real estate markets, there um, is a kind of added volatility here as well. And this is generally also the case. So not, not only do we have a problem of sort of money being taken out also through things like offshoring or very complex kind of company structures where it's very difficult to see where money is going. Um, But also in um, in this context of uh, when um, things are good financially then there is a kind of inflation of value but then when there is a downturn um, the way that this financial engineering works means that um, investors can can manage their risks through financial engineering but the risk, the real social risk Risk is actually carried um, by the workers and by the people who are um, using the services, and also in this case, residents of care homes. So we've also seen in, in recent years, in in the UK, for example, that um, care homes have, um, have have gone bust. You know, they had to close down because these these models are just uh, entirely inappropriate. And um, they don't work. And they are also taking money out of of, uh, the the system, money that is very much needed in order to uh, provide adequate care and make sure that the the people who are providing that care are also remunerated properly and have uh, good good working conditions. So um, this is really a, a problem because there has for a long time now been this very dominant narrative that uh, marketization is something that fuels innovation it makes things more cost efficient and is generally a good thing. And I think we are amassing evidence to the contrary. Um, but. Still, I think at the moment we haven't yet had that shift, and um, that is necessary to really um, seriously bring these services back in house um, or develop. Other uh, non non models on a on a large scale because there is still this sort of idea, um, um, and vested interests in promoting this idea um, that uh, care is a profitable business and is going to be increasingly so because of def- demographic change and, um, and aging. And this is really very, uh, very problematic and and very
3: dangerous. So, just, so let me- just to chip in to yeah. say, we have actually have another podcast on the very same issue. That you can listen if you follow our podcasts on on the actual real estate case, looking at Orpea uh, in France, which is the biggest multinational. Mm. Sorry for this advertising uh, uh, spot. Yeah, <laughs> right, we're
1: gonna we're gonna put but, uh, a link uh, to that uh, episode in the description of this podcast. So uh, you know, I've got. Uh, I just want to ask this question. I mean, it seems like, uh, you're, you're pretty much against all those, you know, financial, private, like purely capitalist, if you like, solutions with regards to, uh, management of the care sector. But, uh, do you, do you consider any solution, you know, any possible solution that relies on, you know, private enterprises, financial services, uh, or financial institutions, uh, you know in in this sector of care to be sustainable to any extent i mean in other words is there any place any room for you know profit making in sustainable care services
2: i think that we need to move away from um the idea that profitability is, is a is a good logic for the the care sector um, I think it's important to to think about how we can have a um, a public infrastructure that not only uh, um, is is funded through progressive taxation, but also thinks about um, and creates new ways also of demo- you know democratic governance of of these areas. I think this this is really important because the the profit motive here um certainly hasn't delivered um, in terms of what it promised to do and also it doesn't it's not really a logic that works in this um, in this area of care for the reasons that I've already that I've already said and um, so therefore I think it really needs a different kind of thinking and that different kind of thinking is non-market non, uh, non-profit models because the other aspect of course of this is and I think this is where um, in terms of uh, policy making as well I think we're still very much in this kind of sense of um, we need also to have a, a, a care infrastructure um, that is paid for through the um, productive activity of, of everybody, and through um, putting more and more people into into waged work. So a lot of policy is orientated also to um, improving and um, growing female labour market participation, for example. But I think what Paula was saying earlier is that cutting into um, into this and thinking about starting from need um, is a very different uh, different way of thinking about these things. And certainly, uh, economic models that are not orientated uh, therefore to um, sort of maximising uh, profitability and productivity, but thinking more in terms of uh, what are the needs, what is uh, what are good working conditions, and what is good and adequate care um, as something that. We we as a society uh, should be able to provide, I think these are uh, questions that should be at the forefront.
1: Sure. And uh, can you tell me what is, in uh, your view, the uh, reception of uh, of these sort of policies in the public opinion? I mean, you just wrote a book about it and, uh, you know, many people have been... You know, trying to make that point, not least you know Pablo and Tuscany and and you know the abstention uh, uh, organizations in their respective countries. Uh, I wonder whether it's uh whether there is really any debate about that. I mean, is there really any doubts in the society, in the public opinion, about you know the question of of uh of what you of what we were discussing here? You know, private profit versus you know care and and public services and the kind of impossibility of sort of uh having both uh that is quality care and 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 private uh profit so uh is it really only this kind of you know one percent standing in the way of this or is it are there any other factors and i'd like you to uh uh tell us what you think about that. And I'd like to invite afterwards, Pablo and Tuscany to also comment on it from the point of view of, uh, well, people uh, in the labor movement, the institutional labor movement.
2: I mean I would say that there are lots of people um and there is certainly a public debate about the need for uh something different um and that I I also think that in the context of the pandemic we saw that um there was definitely a debate and uh, uh, and and a, a different view also about the role of public services and also the role of the state and um there is certainly has been a, a shift here um I think in in attention um and perhaps also in in public opinion and i think for many people um it, it's quite self-evident that that um we need public uh public services that are for everyone regardless of uh, their background and regardless of their um uh, their income and their wealth and that that's something that uh, a, a civilized society uh requires and that that's also um can be uh, funded and 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 can be done i think so i do i do think there are many people that the, the thinking that way, and the pandemic has kind of heightened that. And for example, here in Austria, um, there are a, a number of, um, uh, of of federal countries, sort of the federal level, where if um, care homes and care services are in any way receiving public funds, then they have to be nonprofit. Um, and and so I think. It, Actually, these ideas are not that far away um, in many instances from from some of the um, realities on the ground. And another thing I think that is also important here is um, that if we are serious also about the need for change in light of climate change, then we also need a what I would call a kind of transition infrastructure, right? We need um, a good, solid public infrastructures um, uh, that provide for people in ways that they are actually able to participate um, in what needs to be done in order to, to uh, deal with climate change. So I'm thinking here also that um, if people... Uh, have to uh, change jobs because they work in sectors that, that need to change, these sorts of things, like to actually um, have, uh, uh, provide for people in ways that they can actually um, get involved and get on board with what needs to happen in terms of climate change, then this is the direction that we need to go
1: in. Right. Pablo, I saw you raising. Yeah. It just go ahead.
3: perhaps to clarify, I think it's been like around in, in this half an hour so far, but I mean, if there was no public money in the care sector, there'll be no capacity of making profit. This is a transfer from pu- pension systems, public money into the care system, because uh, as uh, Emma was saying, I mean, either it's a luxury product and then there'll be a very small number of the population, or it is a transfer forum... Different countries, different pension systems mm-hmm. and so on, but it's from either savings of people of workers of self employed to their pension i e how they're taking care uh, when they're old, or directly uh, public subsidies and and this is the tragedy that we're actually using we i mean so our societies are using public money generational solidarity to actually uh, fill the pockets of shareholders of a few multinationals it just makes absolutely no sense uh, in societal terms. So I don't know if the public opinion is, is is changing, but there is a very good case of saying, okay, how, how money... I mean, we see with Orpea lately, I mean, the shares are collapsing because of a scandal that happened in France because of a book, and uh, now it's being bought by BlackRock because it's so cheap, and they know that the, the population is, I mean, you know, uh, I don't have the figure in, in, in uh, like in my mind, but there is a huge increase in the next 20, 30 years. So we're going to need more elderly care. So this is a profitable investment. So now BlackRock sees this multinational who has facilities apart from the real estate uh, business. So they are buying in. And now the question of society is to think: Do we want BlackRock or this kind of this kind of private investment funds to take care of the elderly of our society? I'm still a very young man but when I will stop of being one I my answer will be I do not want uh, like some private uh, financial institution to deal with how I'm uh, taken care of. So I think that's the case that we need to really keep making. Us.
1: Right right I think it's a very good point thank you uh, Pablo and uh, you know for the end of our program I'd like to us uh, to discuss for a bit about Another other aspect that is described in your book Emma, which is there's uh, you know there's a lot of talk about uh, gender, race, you know, class dimensions of care, uh, and you know you already mentioned that the stereotypical role of woman, uh, stereotypical role of women in uh, in our societies, uh, and uh, also there's the question of migrant workers and stereotypes linked to uh, to to their presence. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think it makes sense for us to discuss perhaps uh, the connection between uh, between low pay and the undervaluing of care, uh, but also kind of you know broken through the prism of all those problems that uh, you know I just mentioned here, which are described in your book. Like, how do all those things? Collide, so to say, in a sense, you know the question of race and gender, uh, and all kinds of you know bigotry, if you like, and 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 the question, the central question of our discussion today.
2: So I think the point here is about the the ways in which care work is um, is devalued, and the kinds of um, narratives or stories that are that are told in order to justify that uh, devaluation or the, uh, the ways in which the particular situations that people find themselves in um, are exploited in order um, to uh, have access to uh, relatively uh, low cost, low cost labor. So, um, to put it in less abstract terms, when we come to, when we come to the issue of, of gender, obviously we have here um, the problem that care, caring, is seen as something that is doesn't require much skill or is is not a skilled. Um, skilled work in the sense of that it is something that you need to train for um that is uh unless of course you come to the more complex more medicalized professionalized aspects of, of nursing you know, i think there's also um within within professionalized care work itself there are also kind of differences um uh as well but i think generally there's the issues that women are considered to be um more more caring or they're there they'll they'll do this work anyway or it's Low, it's it, it isn't particularly skilled, anybody can do it when women do it in particular. There's that aspect, um, or there's kinds of other sorts of ideologies of, of caring that are um at play. So, wh- whether that's um things like uh it, it's not really work, so um, it's something that volunteers uh could do. And then when it comes to uh migrant work, I think we have the, the issue that um labour market vulnerability is something that plays a role in terms of who um, works in the sector precisely because uh, the working conditions are not very good, its um, pay is often not very good, that uh, people who are uh, unable to get work in other sectors or um, are, are, are people who then have find work in the in the care sector and and so that's also part of the uh part of the issue that there is also so for example here in um in austria as well there are care workers who um who live in uh, neighboring countries in um, eastern european countries who who work here and that is sort of relying on the fact that um in the countries where they uh where people are coming from where care workers are coming from they don't uh, otherwise would not earn very good wages, and then therefore um, they um, look for work elsewhere so I think these are the kind of structural dynamics that are um, are at play there that then leads to the to these problems that care work is uh, devalued and that c- certain people end up doing um, doing care so it 's not something that 's considered to be uh, that to, to have much much value
1: right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Pablo, and thank you, Tuscany. This was a fascinating discussion, and uh, I recommend everyone listening to this podcast to go ahead and buy uh, the book by Emma Dowling. And uh, let us all hope that uh, finally someone will uh, will kind of take the conclusions of this book and the conclusions of our discussion, uh, and also the conclusions that the labour movement, in particular the labour organisations active in the care sector, that they will recognise it as something important and that it will, uh, it will translate into political decisions that will change the realities of the care sector. Thank you very much once again. Thank you. This is a European Public Service Union podcast.